no one cares about your grades. Like, it's just not something you talk about. And there's no hiring based on ranking. It's not brought up a single time in recruiting. No one's recruiting an MBA because they got good grades during the MBA program. And so there's essentially no external academic pressure. Not from the school, not from your peers, and not from recruiters. So the only people who were very academically focused were either because that's their nature, and that's fine, or if you know there's some people who are just very good at the case method, and so without working that hard, they can have very good grades. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Henry Mott Munoz. Henry is the founder of Philippine EdTech, Education.ph, and also serves as the founder and CEO of a new venture called Edge Tutor, which was spun out of Education. Edge Tutor is a platform that offers comprehensive tutor support solutions, from sourcing and screening to training and retaining highly qualified tutors. They recruit licensed teachers in emerging markets, starting with the Philippines, and after a thorough selection and onboarding process, they provide continuous training and place them in tutoring companies in 20-plus countries globally. Hi, Henry. So nice to catch up with you again today. I'm super excited for our chat. Likewise, likewise. Thanks so much for having us, Amanda. So I think I've sort of known you since 2018. I guess you were the first startup founder I met, even before I knew that it was a startup. Ironically, I think I worked at Education as an intern without knowing that it was a startup. I just thought it was an education company that used technology. (laughs) (laughs) How much has changed in five years, huh? Yes, I think it just goes to show one. The ecosystem has definitely changed in the Philippines. Now people actually know what startups are and that they exist in the ecosystem. And two, I think uh, my career has changed a lot. So thank you for building Education to be the first startup I got to work at. I realize now, looking back, I was probably the youngest intern you guys actually had <laughs> at that year. At least I don't know about the, the other. In- I don't know about the other interns, but yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Never too early to start. Never too early to start. I tell my sister that as well. So I think a lot more people are actually starting to intern younger and younger. So I hope that's a good thing, at least. <laughs> yes. Well, I didn't know that much about you when I started. I think I only really got to know you more in the last one, two-ish years, but I think I'll dive deep into your life story today. So the first question I really want to ask you, and this is still something I don't know, but what was your early childhood like? Did you grow up in France or the Philippines? So I grew up um, a little bit everywhere. We moved around a lot my dad's job because he worked in finance. And so I mostly grew up in Paris and London. That's where I attended high school and in Zurich as well in Switzerland. And then I would spend between one and four months a year back home in the Philippines. And so I I didn't study in the Philippines, but I grew up there for part of my life. So I guess it's like a constant every year, like going back to the Philippines, if that makes sense. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And then we're, we'd go back to Pampanga. I think if we'd only come back for like one or two weeks, it would really be a holiday place. But because we'd come back for months, 
it was more of a second home. And so I, I'm very close to my mother's family. Spent a lot of time growing up between Bambanga and Manila and Baguio and Subic. And we'd always travel in different parts of the country. So it's home more than a, a place to visit. Oh, that's actually pretty cool. So you would spend time in Pampanga with your family. But what about the other places? What would you do in Manila, in Baguio, and in Subic? So we had family in uh, we had family in Manila. And then we just traveled together to, to Baguio and Subic and other places around the country. And how did that, I guess, upbringing influence you? I, I think you grew up in a lot of very developed places in Zurich, in London, Paris, and then coming back to the Philippines constantly and not just coming back to the metro. How did that maybe shape your view of, I don't know, the world or the Philippines? So it's, I think it's very interesting. At the risk of generalizing, I find that typically when you grow up to your point between developed and developing countries, I think you can either take the stance of only liking the more developed places because they're more comfortable and you know that's that's a personal preference. Or I think you almost romanticize and fall in love with the less developed country from a perspective of I think having a bit of a more balanced view as to what makes a country developed or not as developed. I think it's a very long-winded way for me to say that it forced me to think more broadly about development in general. And that's actually what informed my choice to go into economics. I think on a very simple level as a child, my observation always was that people in the Philippines were not any smarter or stupider than people in Europe. They were not, you know, any more or less hardworking. In fact, typically people had to put up with a lot more difficulties and so on average, I would say that uh, there's more grit, resilience and hard work, you know, when you grow up in and work in a place like the Philippines. And so I was always very interested in why is it that the Philippines is a lower income country? And then, it, you know, that's what got me interested in the field of economics and the field of development and the field of economic history. So I think I would say that it really kept me and my sister as open-minded as possible. But it was also very much the intention of our parents. Uh, the view was always to not glorify either country, but to understand and appreciate the differences. Do you have any personal core memories from your time in the Philippines? Yes, so many. I mean, I think one was the excitement every time we'd land in Naidia, because essentially I felt like, you know, my life was always cut between two places. And because we only came home once a year, we'd come, for a very, we'd come back for a very long time. And so essentially, as silly as this might sound, I would feel more Filipino the moment I would land back in Manila. Because also you have to understand that, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s in Europe, there were not that many Filipinos my age. I was typically the only Filipino in school. And when you were growing up in Europe, did you feel more Filipino, more European? Were you more proud of your culture? Or was it maybe not even evident to other people in Europe that you are Filipino? So I physically don't look very Filipino, or at least not the what's uh, usually associated with looking Filipino. And so, yes, people were often surprised. I actually had funny moments where I'd bring friends home and then they'd meet my mom, who's obviously like, you know, she's part Filipino, part Chennai, but be a bit taken aback just because they didn't expect me to have an Asian mother, even though I said <laughs> that I was half Asian and that my mother was Asian. No, I think we always felt with one foot firmly in both countries because also I left France when I was very young. I was 11 when I left France. And so my parents made it a point that we spent time in France and the Philippines every year. So we, we felt very much, you know, bicultural and binational. It doesn't necessarily show because you're not 
you're not going to start every sentence with, by the way, I'm like half Filipino and I identify yeah. strongly with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you bring it up if you don't look the part, right? I think people only bring it up when they see how you look and they ask like, oh, are you mixed or something like that, I guess. Sure. Why was it so important for your parents, I guess, keep you guys coming back to France and the Philippines? I mean, it's it's an overused sentence, but if you know, if you don't know where you're from, how can you possibly move forward? I think it's just a very strong attachment to our dual roots. Also, my father is, you know, has spent a lot of time in the Philippines and sort of formed of it. He actually met my mother when he was working in the Philippines. My mother spoke French before she met my father. She studied in Europe, so she's obviously very attached to France and French culture. So it it wasn't just a case of each parent trying to quote unquote promote their own country. It was very much from a place of, you know, both countries are interesting, are beautiful, are part of your heritage, and you should be at home and proud of and interested in, but also critical of your two home countries. We're also a very like nerdy family. <laughs> Probably a little bit of overthinking that goes into it. Maybe. But I think it's it's actually pretty nice to hear that both of your parents are both equally interested in the Philippine culture and in the French culture and that it had a special place in both their hearts even before you know they met each other. Yeah. So something I was wondering, you mentioned that you would move around a lot, France, Zurich, London, and then you would come back to the Philippines. I think it's very interesting and I think it's something deeply impactful to have to pick up your life and have to restart again multiple times when you're very young. And then it's another thing to come back to your home country regularly when you don't always spend your your time there so how did that experience shape you was it in the friend side was it the academic side was it the cultural side i think it's all of them uh i was reflecting on this with someone the other day who just moved for to a new country for the first time age 33 and you know he was saying it was a lot harder to move than he would have possibly anticipated and one of the things that i that i mentioned to him you know to try to make it a little bit uh have a bit of a more positive view of you know, all of this moving is that every time you move, you essentially start a little bit from scratch. And yeah. this gives you an opportunity to examine who you are and you know what defines you, what are your values, what are your interests. So you know I'm not suggesting that you know I had a makeover every two years, every <laughs> two years. But I think it's one of the nice things is you you realize that you have a lot of control over your interests, your values, where you spend your time. And that gets reinforced when you move around a lot because you're constantly restarting. I suspect that if I had stayed my entire life in the same place, my personality would have changed less over my first 18 years than it did as a result of going through seven different schools. Do you think it gives people a stronger sense of self? Is that what you mean? I think it can. You have to put in the work there. There's a phenomenon known as third culture kids, people who come from two countries and grow up in others that are neither of those two countries and who have a massive, who have massive issues in terms of identity and in terms of belonging. So I think there's a, there's a wide spectrum. I, I think we were lucky because our parents were very, just invested a lot of time and effort in making sure that we always felt that we belong uh, in France and in the Philippines. And the reality is I didn't move around that much. Like I basically kept staying in Western Europe. So yes, it's different countries, different cultures, but you know, these are cities that are an hour away by flight from each other. It's not like we lived in Latin America and Africa and Canada. But when you would move to a new place, would it be hard to make friends? What was your experience on that side? 
So I was very introverted as a kid to the point that my Lola thought I was deaf. I was uh, deaf and a child. Because <laughs> I, said, I said so little and I would sit in a corner for hours just playing with the same toy. And uh, I, so I would say I was a lot more introverted as a child. But yeah, moving every two years, uh, you have to keep making new friends. And so I think that made me come out of my shell a lot more and made me more extroverted. Right. And then when you were graduating from high school, did you have a clear picture of what you wanted to do for your major, at least, or for your job? Yes. So I went to college in the UK, which unlike the US, has very specific courses. So when you apply, you apply for a specific course. So I applied for economics and economic history. And so before I even set foot on campus, I already knew essentially which subjects I would be taking for the three-year degree. So it's quite prescriptive, just pros and cons to that. But as a result, it means that the time you use in college is not so much of figuring out what you find interesting at school, but immediately already thinking about what do I want to do with the rest of my life. And so you have less academic freedom, but ironically, that means that you have more time to think about your career choices. I always found finance interesting, so I knew I wanted to start in finance. And so I would, I would say I had a, I would probably say I had an easier time than the typical student. And then when you went to LSE, did you already know what country you wanted to work in? Did you want to go back to the Philippines, stay in London, or was it more open-ended? So that's super interesting that you had asked this. So my dream when I was 18 was to actually become a journalist for the Inquirer. Really? Why? I read it religiously every morning. It's, it's the newspaper I read religiously. I just found it so interesting and I... I just wanted to be a journalist and um, learn more and share share with others whatever I would learn. That was my like, you know, wide-eyed eighteen-year-old uh, dream. But then I also wanted to uh, to work in finance in London. So I think you know, it's one thing that we we talk about a lot in it is uh, It's people can hold multiple dreams at the same time. Um, when did your dream to so, be a journalist like start? Was it around the same time you knew you wanted to be in finance or was it before, after? I, I was interested in finance since I was 12 years old. So that was quite early. I think my interest in journalism was more during college. I got a little bit involved in like the school magazine and newspaper. Um, I just found it very interesting. But the reality is I was not as exposed to it. And so I think it was I think that's a very simplistic view of and interest in journalism. And then did you ever have like a moment where you told yourself, I have to pick between one to pursue in my career? Or was it always clear that finance would be the one you would choose at the end of the day? So my parents always made it clear that I had to be independent after college, which I think is very, uh, which I think was very healthy. And, you know, it's still very generous that they covered my college expenses. But as I got near to graduation, yes, it became quite clear to me that Working in finance in London would be a more financially secure position than trying to move back to the Philippines with no formal training as a journalist and trying to be a journalist there. Right. And then after you went to LSE, when it came to, I guess, the time to find a job, what was your job search experience like for your first job? So I find the UK is a very pragmatic system. The whole education and employment system in the UK is actually quite pragmatic. So as I mentioned earlier, you select your subjects quite early. So at 16, I was already picking economic courses and colleges in terms of application. And then once you start, the course load is not very heavy. 
the UK system is focused on self-study uh, or rather like self-paced study. So you can graduate by showing up to four hours of class a week and just sitting the final end of the year exam. So in theory, your the commitment required to graduate with good grades from college in, in the UK is very, very low. This leaves a lot of space for exploring personal interests and a lot of space for figuring out your career choices. And on my end, I had already done multiple internships in finance and I kept doing internships in finance throughout my time at, at the LSE. So I did internships during first year, my first year summer break. I did formal internship in my second year summer break. And by the time I started third year, I already had a job offer to join a company by the time I graduated. So, so it's a lot of advanced planning. And so, yeah, as I said, the UK system is very, is very practical and pragmatic. I see. And then when you were in university, what were you into apart from you know, the classes? Were you somebody who liked to go out and socialize a lot? Maybe not because you're an introvert. What would you do? No, so I did socialize. I I think thanks to having moved around multiple times, I I had gotten become more sociable over time. I spent a lot of time. So I I helped restart an LSE Filipino society. And that was my main org. And so I, I helped restart in my first year with a couple of Filipinos that I met. And then I ended up being part of the leadership team in my second and third year. Uh, I think at one point I was probably spending more time in the Filipino society than I was on my studies, which is maybe not very <laughs> smart, but, uh, I found it very fulfilling and I still, I still got the minimum grade I needed to get into my job. So I was fine. And then apart from the Filipino society, what did you do? Did you have any hobbies in university? Any places that you like to frequent a lot? So I tried my hand. Unfortunately, failed, but it was an enjoyable experience. Muay Thai boxing. And so that's, uh, uh, that was one activity I pursued. Spent a lot of time playing backgammon, which I realized is just like, I mean, it's a hobby. It's not an activity. It doesn't have a particularly like important purpose, but it's highly pleasurable. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. <laughs> and then also traveled quite a bit. So yeah, it was, I would say I had a pretty balanced college experience. And that's partly thanks to the UK system not being academically very heavy, at least when you study social sciences. And so you mentioned travel. I think one of the perks of studying in the UK or generally in Europe is it's pretty accessible to travel all around Europe, like hop on a cheap flight. You can get pretty much anywhere. How did you decide where to go? Did you usually do like solo trips, go with like one friend or like in a big group? So I mixed it up. I was part of an international relations association. And so, for example, we did like a human rights trip to Slovenia, which I thought was super interesting. You know, talking to asylum seekers and, and refugees there. You know, some trips were, were around that theme. Other trips were just, you know, visiting friends and, and countries where they were from or just kind of like exploring a bit randomly as a, as a college student. So typically traveled with friends uh, or with people who had similar interests. I wouldn't say I was very methodical. <laughs> okay. I find it difficult to be very methodical about multiple aspects of my life. So the same way that now I'm very methodical at work, but I'm quite random in my social activities. And so I, it's a personality that I already had back in college. So I was very focused and organized on my job search back then. But as a result, and I was quite organized on the Filipino society, but as a result on things like, you know, where to travel in Europe, it very random. So you need to have a degree of randomness in the personal area of your life to balance out the logic, structure, and seriousness of the other sides? Absolutely. Okay. And then, so when you 
landed your first job, were you excited? Was it your dream job? Yes. It was investment banking and it was at a, you know, at a bank with a good reputation. So I was very excited about starting that. Very nervous as well. Massive, massive, like, you know, massive imposter syndrome. And then when you're working there, what was that experience like? Was it everything that you imagined? How did it shape you? <laughs> I mean, I cried multiple times over the last <laughs> few months. Uh, <laughs> it tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> I heard that sometimes they make you cry in the interview too. Is that is that what happened to a lot of people too? Or is it usually in the job? <laughs> <laughs> it's like pick your poison. No. And the worst part was no one made me cry, but I would just cry out of sheer exhaustion. Uh, I would work 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. most days and I work most weekends. Is that like a typical job or is it also because of the sector you're in, in investment banking? It was unfortunately quite typical of M&A. So I worked in M&A teams. And as a result, yes, the, the hours I put in were gruesome, but most of the other first-year honorers had similar hours to me. Like we see each other in the corridors at like 3 a.m. Like it's not, you know, you, <laughs> you unfortunately start having to roll with it. I guess we're all in this together. It's probably the 3 a.m. mood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you definitely got very bitter or jealous with people who'd be able to like leave at like 10 p.m. And you'd be suspicious, like, how are they doing it? Like, <laughs> are they kissing ass? Or, you know, are they getting less work? Or, I mean, usually they're probably just like better organized and more efficient. So how were they doing it? Were they really mostly organized? Or was it really, was it the job load of the others? What were the biggest factors to whether you'd get home early or late? Because I think 3 a.m. versus 10 p.m. is a big window. <laughs> it's like, no. Honestly, it's just very boss dependent. Because you're you're at the bottom of the food chain. and so. You have to stay until the job is done. So if you have someone above you who's very organized and gets you your task at 10 a.m., then you know you can work until 10 p.m. and like crank out some pretty good work. If you have a boss who like debriefs you at 5 p.m., which like a lot of people did, uh, then you're screwed because your work your workday on that task starts at 5 p.m. Right. Uh, so I think w- one key takeaway for me was it made me very sensitive to how my organization impacts the quality of life of others, especially those who work for you. And I think very often we talk a lot about how we communicate feedback, how we talk to each other. And yes, that's important. But between a boss who is abrasive, but gets me stuff on time and allows, and that means I can go home early versus someone who's super kind, super polite and disorganized and basically keeps apologizing but keeps me in the office until 3 a.m i will pick the abrasive boss every right. single time i would make the same choice though <laughs> yeah yeah and ideally look you want someone who's everything but no one is everything and so for me the formative bit was the best thing you can do is give clear directions limit unnecessary work and be very very organized in terms of signing off on stuff or giving feedback or giving directions because that massively impacts the quality of life of people like you so with that experience, did it make you not like the finance sector as much? Or was it clear to you back then that, oh, this is just like because of, you know, maybe my boss or the way things are structured? Did it maybe disillusion yourself? No, because you they were very open about how horrible the hours were. So you weren't shocked. I and I think I was lucky because I was young. Uh, I started work at 21. I got a job offer when I was... I had just turned 20 when I got my first job offer. Uh, and oh, I started working okay. a, week a-, a week after turning 21. So there were other people in my batch 
who were five to 10 years older. And I think for them, it was very hard. So my advice always is start with the hardest job first mm. and start working early because there's just often a rite of passage where you're going to have to work really painful hours. And I know what I'm saying is maybe not like very like millennial Gen Z friendly, but <laughs> unfortunately, we all have to start somewhere and that somewhere often is difficult and you're better off doing difficult stuff. When you're younger, you have more energy, you have less commitments. You know, I had colleagues who were 31. Wow. A kid. I don't understand how they did it. I, I physically did not comprehend how they had the energy, how their spouse was not leaving them, how yeah. they weren't like racked with guilt at never seeing their kid. I mean, it's, and, and that's why I would always advise people to, you know, get, get the most painful part of your career out earlier. Uh, it's, it's just easier. I'm sure it was also very formative, like having the grueling long hours. So I guess having that formative experience early in the career is also much better than having the formative experience much, much later in life. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I have friends who basically kept delaying like that and they had their moment of reckoning in their late 20s or 30s. And even from an ego perspective, it's hard. Oh, because okay, when you're wow. 21 and your boss says that, you're, that your work is shit, you know, I looked at my boss and I was thinking, I was like, well, fair enough. <laughs> I'm two weeks or right. a month into my first. You can always job. justify yourself, <laughs> like say it's okay that it did. <laughs> no, no, but also I was just like you know, like I want the feedback. You know, when I'm to- I'm now 37. When I'm told at 37 that something I've done is shit, I definitely don't take it as well as I did 16 years ago. Right. Because now you, unfortunately, you know, like unless you're so strong that you mouth fully let go of ego, which I haven't, you start thinking that, well, I have 16 years of work experience. I, you know, you unfortunately develop the ego over time. Yeah. And it's work. hard to shake because it's, it's a very, a it's, backed by correct. experience, right? Like real work you've done. Correct. And so it's, it's still dangerous. So, you know, we, uh, at Edge, we often talk about, you know, checking your, your ego at the door. But I also know that it's, people are human and the longer you've worked, the higher the chances that you'll have accumulated ego on certain topics. And so you've changed jobs, you know, in 2007, I mean, 2009 to another firm. What prompted the switch in mm-hmm. roles and moving into, well, it wasn't consulting. I think it was still finance, right? Yes, I moved to private equity. It was a very unoriginal move. Very often people started working in M&A doing investment banking, which is what I did. And then within two or three years, people would then move to finance, to other roles in finance. But typically, they'd move to hedge funds or private equity or asset management or, you know, another function with the bank. It's just because the hours were not sustainable. Uh, you know, I started having like massive hair loss. I started, you know, having like weight fluctuation. I, in just two my years. My skin was turning gray because. Wow. Yeah. It makes sense. Like, because like you're working 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. You're working weekends. You're constantly like at work. The only time I had to, so I like to read. I'm a voracious reader. And I read one book in a year and a half. It was the picture of Dorian Gray. And I read it on the bike in the gym at like 10 p.m. Because that's the only time I had to like work out and read. Yes. <laughs> so it's a bit oh tragic. My. Uh, and so that's fine to do for like two years. And there are some people who managed to do this for much longer, but I knew I, I wanted to eventually do something different. Mm-hmm. And private equity is very interesting work. I really enjoyed it. So it was just a question of like, how quickly could you get a job in private equity? And then, so you left your job in private equity after a while, like after a couple of years to take your MBA. What prompted you to take an MBA then? Um, so I didn't want to do an MBA initially. I think MBAs are quite, 
appreciated and valued in the Philippines. In Europe, less so. Mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons. Uh, typically because continental Europeans do longer studies. So if you study in France or Germany, you rarely graduate with a bachelor's. You typically graduate a bachelor's and a master's. And a lot of people study business in college. So if you study business for five years in college, the idea of taking two years off and paying $20,000 to do a master's in business, it's a bit hard to justify. Yes. And most European leaders don't have MBAs, business leaders. Uh, so there's not the same pressure. I think the US is the more extreme version where it's not just really valued, but there's a lot of industries where you can't get ahead without an MBA. So I didn't have an MBA in my roadmap. The only reason I ended up doing one was because a lot of people at work suggested. They're like, you don't need it, but it's a wonderful experience. You should consider it. And I was initially put off because it was expensive and time consuming. And then a good friend of mine uh, from Goldman that I used to work with had just finished hers. And the way she won me over was, well, you know, she's like, it costs little to apply. Apply. And then once you have the offer in front of you, if you get in, then decide if it's something that you want, which I think is a very important point around optionality, which is something mm-hmm. that's struck me that, that I've kept in many decisions I've made in the rest of my life. If the cost of optionality is not that high, you should always invest so that you can have that optionality. Right. So once you got the offer, how did you feel? Did you know when you got the offer that you wanted to do it or did it take some time again? I tried not to make a decision before I got the offer because it's a very competitive school to get into and I didn't want to get excited and not get in. Yeah. And so I I purposely didn't think about it. I think subconsciously I knew I would I would take it if I had an offer, mm-hmm. but I was trying to ignore that topic. Yeah. And then when the offer came, I decided very quickly to accept. And then, so how was the experience for you? Was it what you imagined as well? or? So it's very interesting. So I think Americans are often prone to exaggeration in their, in their language. And so a lot of friends who had told me that it was a transformative experience, you know, that nothing... I've heard that phrase before. <laughs> transformative experience. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And I was just like, I was like, I'm sure it's nice, but you know, like at the end of the day, what we're going to study marketing and accounting and, you know, be around like perfectly nice, smart other individuals. It's, it was hard for me to think that it was going to be extremely different from the experience of college plus work. Yeah. It felt like college with, you know, a few more years of experience, a little bit more money because you've actually worked for a couple of years and you're not just a broke college student. But I, I was quite dubious around the word transformative. And yet, uh, I would say that the MBA was a transformative experience. Okay. In what way? So I think what I didn't expect was the amount of introspection that would happen. I assumed that people went in a bit transactionally, you know, just to get a better paying job, right? Like, and in fact, as a lot of business schools, the key stat they share with you is, you know, the average salary jump for a student is X. And so my view was, okay, so it's a, you know, it's a socially accepted holiday on your CV or it's an effective way of accelerating your your career, getting higher income. And then, you know, for those who are interested, just changing career track. So going from ops to, to uh, marketing or from, you know, marketing to, uh, to finance, et cetera, et cetera. What I didn't expect was you spend two years. It's a little bit self-absorbed. It's actually quite self-absorbed. But you basically spend two years figuring out where do I want to live? What purpose do I want to have in my career? What kind of life partner do I want? Do I want a life partner? Do I want kids? How will I raise my kids? How will I balance work and personal? What role do I want to play in society? 
So much more philosophical than I was expecting. And it's not very competitive in the sense that everyone is extremely generous with their time, their advice, their introductions, which was quite different from my college experience where people weren't mean, but all of us were applying for the exact same job. Yeah. And so all, all of us knew that, well, you know, if I get the job, that means that spot is no longer available for, for Henry or anyone else in the year. So it was, and that's a little bit how I thought business school would be. And on the contrary, to use that beautiful expression, you know, it was, it was an attitude of abundance. And why do you think people were like that in business school? Why do you think it was more on the, you know, philosophical side than the outcome side of like, I want this job or this salary? Was it facilitated by like the, I don't know, the course? Yes. So it's intellectually quite light. <laughs> and I, I might get into trouble for saying this, but you know, if you think about the system, 80% of people get a grade that's called a two. Yeah. The top 10% get something that's called a one, like the top five or 10%. And then the bottom five or 10% get something that's called a three. So essentially what this says is as long as you're doing, you know, an average amount of work, you're going to be given a two, which is a grade that's absolutely fine. It's like a very solid B. If you're very great obsessed, you can get ones and then you get little awards. If you have like a lot of ones, uh, yeah. you can graduate with distinction. You can graduate as a Baker scholar, but no one cares about your grades. Like it's just not something you talk about. Like it's not, there's, you know, and, and there's no hiring based on ranking. It's not brought up a single time in recruiting. No one's recruiting an MBA because they got good grades during their MBA program. And mm-hmm. so there's essentially no external academic pressure, not from the school, not from your peers and not from recruiters. So the only people who were very academically focused were either because that's their nature and that's fine. People didn't look up or look down on them. It was just like, okay, like so-and-so is just very academically focused. Or if, you know, there's some people who are just very good at the case method. And so without working that hard, they can have very good grades because also like, half of your grade is class participation and half is like written exams that are open book. So there's really very little pressure to try to quote unquote win academically. And if anything, what a lot of people do, which I think makes sense is when you look at your section, any class that you're in, no one will remember if you got a good grade or not. They'll remember if you were pleasant, cooperative, a good listener, logical in your arguments, And so you optimize for basically being someone that people would want to work with as opposed to someone who has good grades. And it's quite healthy that way. And so I would say that's reason number one. I think reason number two is because a lot of people apply for an MBA for the same reason or because they're at a similar time in their life, right? Like all of us apply to college because we have to. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we all live in fairly rigid societies where if you want to go to college, typically you should go right after high school. There's a few countries where you can do a gap year, but... 99% 99% of people you meet who go to college ended up going after high school. Yeah. And so there's not the same agency, whereas an MBA is really a choice. Only a very small minority of people in the world do an MBA. You really have to want to do one because it's expensive and time-consuming. There's an age range for you to apply, but there's not a there's not an exact typical age. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you there's a self-selection process, which ends which means you end up with people having more in common. So talking about life after MBA, you went back to work, I guess, maybe to pay off the, the tuition. But then 
in 2015? 100%. Okay. I guess right. I guess right. Because I think I read somewhere that people usually do this. <laughs> and then they go off to do correct, something correct. else after. Because I, I noticed like this pattern and yes. I started reading about it. It's like, huh, it actually is a thing. You go back to work at this high paying job, pay off your tuition, then go do what you actually want, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. Which is why whenever you look at post-MBA career choices, never look at what people do right at graduation. Look at what they do five years after. And that gives you a much better sense of whether a school is entrepreneurial or not. Because typically within the first five years, that's allowed you to pay off the loans or to fulfill a contractual obligation. So I had to go back for two years oh, for my loan to be canceled because it was a scholarship. It was a scholarship. Basically, I had a scholarship that said I have to go back to bank capital for two mm-hmm. years. And so I think always super interesting to see, you know, what people are doing five years out of graduation rather than right at graduation. Did you have a plan to move back to the Philippines after you finished off your scholarship requirement? Or did that only happen really in like 2014, 2015? No, no, no. So I started Education in 2013. Oh, you started in 2013. I had a very small team in Manila. There were initially just one person and it eventually became two, three people. And they they were already starting the work on it. They were meeting with uh, with schools, meeting with organizations, meeting with government. So when I moved back in 2015, they had been working on it for the last two years. So actually, education was started around the same time or right after the MBA while you were still working at Bain Capital. Correct. So my day, my day job was at Bain Capital. My evening job was at Bain And my weekend job was Bandai.ph, which was an anti-corruption NGO. So basically, education has been alive for like 10 years at this point. Yes. Okay, wow. I didn't know that. I thought it was it started in 2015. My bad. So one question I have... No, no, no. no. We, that's because uh-huh. we usually say 2015 because that's when I moved to Manila. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> one question I have though is like, you know, you've shifted roles over time at education. So I was wondering like, what prompted each transition? Like, how do you know when to transition to a new role? Because I think this does happen you know, especially when a startup or a company has been around for a while, how do you know when to transition out of a role or into a new role? So there's never a perfect time. And the way I look at transitions is always, how do you optimize the transition rather than how do you have a perfect transition? Because all change is difficult for an organization. And especially when you have, you know, in startups, a lot of companies are fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your angle, can be very founder-centric. And the, the danger there is that sometimes it's helpful because you're, you're able to leverage that to, you know, to build the culture or to get, uh, you know, to progress in your business efforts or in fundraising. It's very important. But the issue then is that you create this key man or key woman risk where a lot of the organization is essentially built around one person or around the founding team. And so the way we built education always was there were always two people in charge. And so, and in one instance, we even named one of them like a co-founder, but it was always a dual system. So the first person I hired, I thought basically she had a different title. I think we, we called her executive director. And then when I moved, I became CEO, but essentially we're running the joint together and she was great. And then after a couple of years, she left uh, and we had someone, a Wharton graduate who came in as COO and CFO, but we just divided all the work in two. And then eventually he left to join his family business. And then we had a new CFO who joined in and she became CEO and we ended up running things together. And then 
with great. And then every time the question I had was always, is that person, can that person become CEO of education? Uh, because fundamentally what's in my interest is for the best person to run this business. And for one period, it's going to be me, but there will come at a point where it's not me. And so my view of the role of the, of the founder is to just constantly try to make themselves redundant. And then the reality is because you're the founder and because things are early days, you constantly get pulled back into different paths. But your mentality should always be, how do I make myself redundant? And you work towards that rather than how do I make everything about me? Because things are already about you. It's already very natural for things to gravitate towards the founder. So my, it's, and everyone has their own view, but mine is you should always constantly try to ease yourself out. And then as you free up more time, that allows you to get pulled into other aspects of running the business. When, you know, when we hired Grace to join in the partnerships team, it was the first time where I saw CEO potential in someone else. And so I had a conversation with her very early on. She was only, I think, two or three months within her role when I basically asked her if she'd be interested in becoming CEO eventually. And then she was quite taken aback uh, in the classic, and I'm going to use my words carefully here, but, you know, there's really until today, I think a massive gender divide. You know, you, know, you tell a guy that he's ready to be C-suite, and very often the announcer is like, you know, how soon can I start? Or like, yeah. thank you for like seeing my potential. You have a, a female leader in your team, and you say, I think you should like, you should accelerate your promotion. And it's like, oh, but how do I know if I'm even ready? Right. And that's something that I firmly believe in correcting, and that's why I'm mentioning it in this interview to any of your female listeners out there that you have to change that. The, the first question should, should not be like, am I even good enough? The first question is, okay, how would this look like? Yeah. It's perfectly fine to have doubts. It's just not good to have self-doubts. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. I see that a lot with my friends, even when it's not about like a CEO role, but even just like stepping into a Correct. bigger Correct. role. <laughs> and it's not a Filipino thing. I have friends from business school who are smarter than me, more accomplished. And I'll speak to them when they work in... You know, they work in London, they work in New York, and the language they use is the same. It's like, well, you know, I, I don't know that I'm good enough for that Gucci role. And it's just very shocking because I speak to guy friends from the same year and they've already made VP and they're already, you know, saying that they deserve like a next promotion. And we all start at the same time. We all finish business school at the same time. And so it's, it's really not just a Filipino thing. And that's something that we absolutely have to change. And the next question I have is really about like your new venture now, which is Edge Tutor, which was started within Education, then spun out. How did you know when to spin it out and that you should be the one to take the lead of this new venture? So it's super interesting because the intention was not to spin it out at the beginning. Edge was really started as a division of Education. And the key client in mind was the Filipino learner, like the rest of Education. So this was this was just a new product line of offering you know, high quality English and math tutoring for learners, uh, for K-12 learners. What happened was, you know, we launched in the Philippines, we got some traction, and then unexpectedly, we started getting traction from outside the Philippines. And so what was meant to be a division focused on Filipino learners, very quickly started getting more demand for from non-Filipino learners. And, you know, within a few months, 70, 80% of revenue was coming from outside the Philippines. And so it just morphed into something completely different. And so as we saw this happening very quickly within a matter of months, we had a discussion with the board, which was, you know, it's such a different business model. 
It's different end customers. It's B2B provision of tutors to tutoring companies out of the Philippines. Does it make sense to keep running it within education or should we spin it out? And then the other thing was we had team members who were working on both. It was very difficult for them. It was very stressful. People were having a difficult time context switching. Uh, even us as a leadership team, we, we kept going back and forth between the two businesses. And so within a few months, it became clear that it was just unsustainable to try to run them together. So that's when we decided to spin out uh, late last year. Whenever you sort of had to transition out of your role in education, and now that you're not really leaving wholly, but sort of leaving it because you're not necessarily there on the day-to-day as much, you're more probably more focused on ed, um, on Edge Tutor. How did it affect you? Was it difficult for you to sort of separate from yourself, separate yourself from the role and the company? Because you did start it like 10 years ago. <laughs> Yes. So I think it's, it's a lot more gradual than that. Uh, I mean, it's a great question, but let me share a piece of advice that I got very early on when I started Education, which always stuck with me, which was there's two ways you, when you're, if you're a founder CEO, there's two ways in which you step down as CEO. You either find your replacement or you're fired by your board. Right. Uh, and so that always stuck with me. And, you know, again, perhaps going to the ego thing, no desire to be fired by the board. And so I always ask myself, you know, every three to six months, I would look at the business, I would look at the value I was adding, and I ask myself, like, am I, am I the right CEO and am I the best CEO for the job? And if I was, I'd happily stay on. And if I'm not, then gotta look for someone else. And so in the case of Education, I stepped down as CEO on my five year anniversary. So in October 2020. So I haven't been CEO of that business for three years. When I stepped down in October 2020, after training and onboarding Grace for more than a year to become CEO, I then became head of growth and reported to her. And so since the end of 2020, my role has been to figure out new growth opportunities for education. 2021, we've tried a bunch of things that didn't work. So it was like, you know, try, fail, learn, repeat. And then it's only in late 2021 when we decided to go to tutoring that we started getting traction in early 2022 unlike for the other things we had tried. And so I've been working on Edge since Q4 of 2021. It's been two years. And so I've been, I'm a board member of Education. And I, you know, I, I speak to our CEO every single week. We Slack every single day, but I haven't had an operational role for the core Education business in two years. Mm-hmm. Because you sort of transitioned out of multiple roles before stepping out of the business, like in the day-to-day versus like, you know, just transitioning out all at once. Correct. So typically, the other thing that you'll find is that people see transitions on LinkedIn, right? They'll see someone mm-hmm. changing their job. The reality is by the time you've seen it on LinkedIn, it means we've worked on it as a company for months and sometimes years. So and, mm-hmm. I officially only became CEO of Edge in March 2023, but I've been working on Edge since December 2021. Oh, okay. That's, That's like a good example. Because, and I think like it also shows how much preparation the transition has. And then once you announce it, I guess personally, you're also more okay with yourself. Maybe it's difficult also to like transition into a new role and then go public about it. So maybe that's another lesson to take away. Yes. If people like to rush announcements. You should only make an announcement once it's uncontroversial to you and to everyone who's affected by it. So by the time you see us making a little LinkedIn humble brag or happy post, the entire team has known for months. We've told all of our clients 
Uh, we've told everyone when they interview it. Like, so it's basically anyone who works with me or who works with a company knows. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's great. And so when you make it, and so I think it's, it's very dangerous. Sometimes people rush announcements mm-hmm. and you, you get a bit of like a, a sugar high from yeah. you know, everyone like congratulating you and whatnot, but it's very damaging to the business. No one should ever find out secondhand key information. Yeah. If someone that should have known only finds out because you did a LinkedIn post, you have failed in your job of communicating. Mm-hmm. See, that's probably going to be one of my major takeaways from this episode. And I think talking about like struggles, I want to introduce you the new section that we're having on One More Scoop, which I shared with you earlier, where we have our readers from Backscoop or listeners from One More Scoop submit something that they're struggling with in their business. And you can share your opinion, thoughts, or maybe a solution that you have, or perhaps your own experience with it. And this one comes from an early stage VC funded startup founder. And that person shared this dilemma, which is, I've got a toxic set of star performers in my team. They had traction, but damaged culture. How would you go about It's a super important question that every founder keeps going through, regardless of what stage you're in. And it's something that affects multi-billion dollar companies also. And so, you know, there's people will often tell you that like culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. In some respects, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It's not that far from the truth. So culture is super important. I think what my advice would be, you know, you have to always remember that typically people act based on the rewards and incentives that they have. And that individuals tend to be guided by personal desires rather than group desires. So the first piece of advice I have is don't lump all of these employees together. It's very easy as a founder to be like, okay, great. So I've got, you know, I'm going to stereotype and say that like employee three, seven, eight, nine, and 12 are in that I'm a high performer, but I trash the culture category. And the danger there is, you know, you're, you're lumping people together who might have very, very different aspects to work and very different reasons for which they're acting in a way that you find toxic. So that's the first one. Like don't lump people together. Every person is unique, which is more painful to manage, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, the second thing I would say is always ask yourself, is the person toxic or is the incentive structure toxic? And so, for example, you know, I can share with you that yeah, we've just gone through employee performance reviews at Edge Tutor and we had very long debates around what percentage of the grade should come from hitting your KPIs versus from uh, respecting and meeting culture. Um, and then, you know, we ended up settling on probably about 80% for KPIs, 20% for culture. There was actually some pushback. Some folks wanted borderline 0% for culture because their view was, you know, what if we end up with a bunch of people who are very nice and very liked uh, and very positive and helpful, but who don't hit any targets? So my counter argument was like, well, when 80% of your grade comes from performance, like no amount of effort will save you if you're not meeting that criteria. And so you have to ask yourself, what am I, you know, am I being explicit that culture matters? Because if the way you give bonuses and promotions is only based on KPIs, I do you really blame the person for focusing on KPIs. Of course, you want everyone to have like a nice respect of the culture, but you know, that's you, you have to think about your system. The third one, and it's very hard for founders or for any manager to accept this is what's the alternative narrative? The alternate alternative narrative. Is it that these people are high performing but toxic? Or is it that actually those who are less performing 
but don't embody the right culture. And I've had this at Education where at one point, you know, we, we were over hire, over indexing on fundamentally how nice people were in the interview and yeah. how similar they were in Outlook. And what that got us was a lot of groupthink, a lot of people who loved each other and are still friends until now, but also like terrible performance individually and in a group. Because when you get a bunch of people who are all non-confrontational, non-KPI driven and idealistic, you will socially really, really like, uh, you will feel like you're all working on this amazing mission together, but you will literally have some people who just couldn't complete a report, you know, yeah. they're like dependent on you. And so I think that's my third piece of advice is check your narrative. Like what is toxic? Is it the way these people like treat others? That's terrible. If they backstab, that's terrible. If they steal people's work and don't take the credit, that's terrible. If people find them abrasive because they're very direct with feedback, I would put that more of a question mark. Are they abrasive or are they direct? Yeah. Are they speaking with radical counter or are they hostile? Very, very different. And then the final thing I would, I would leave you with is you, you have to, you know, once you figured out like what you think truly matters in your culture, then you have to decide. And that's really the founder, the CEO's job. You know, how do I think about the, the weight I put on it to promote? And for yeah. example, I think back on my first ever job where one of the bosses that made me cry it was an asshole. Like there's no other way to describe it. He was very good at his job. I learned a lot from him, but he was fundamentally like extremely rude and, you know, constantly making people cry. And what was so interesting is they refused to promote him to managing director, even though he was earning so much for the firm, mm-hmm. because the company's policy was you can rise up all the way to vice presidents, but to be a managing director, fundamentally people want to work for you. And so he didn't make MD for, I think, two cycle promotions in a row. And he was very upset about it. Uh, but the feedback was very clear. It's like, well, look, for you to make MD, you need to be more aligned with like the company's cultural values. And so that's, that's, that would be my advice. Having said that, all these things are easier said than done. And I've been there where if someone's a very good performer, you always feel like you should walk on eggshells around them. But if, mm-hmm. some, if that person truly is detrimental to the company's culture, you need to have that conversation. Well, thanks for these help. points. I think it's they're really great. And I can already picture how they're going to look very good in a carousel of like lessons for anybody who's struggling with the same thing. And my last question for you, and feel free to answer this in like just one sentence or one line, is a question I ask everyone in this podcast to close. And it is, outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life at any point in time? A family. And why? I've always wanted kids. I recently got married and my husband and I are very keen on having kids at some point in our in our marriage. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Henry. And thank you so much for joining me today for the podcast. It's really nice to catch up with you and really get to know you a lot better. I think I learned a lot from you as well that I hopefully haven't seen anywhere before. So I think these will be a lot of unique lessons <laughs> for people, whether they're building their own startup or just struggling in their organization or who are just contemplating an MBA. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a big fan of um, of your work, and I I always enjoy your newsletter and your and your interviews. So uh, happy to give back in a small way uh, wherever I can. And thanks so much for the opportunity.